Welcome to Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind Reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and I hope you're ready for more emotional turmoil from a 40-year-old widower. Last time, we followed Rayford Steele as he journeyed home to find that his wife Irene and son Ray Jr. have also been caught up in this wave of global disappearances, and we watched Cameron Buck Williams do some research about major political movements. This week, Ray will try to piece his life back together, and Buck will begin the journey to Global Weekly headquarters in New York City. I also want to mention that I'm going to start covering three chapters an episode instead of two. This way we can get through the books a little faster, and reach the dramatic events that only happen later in the series. It means episodes will be a little longer. I hope you don't mind. Chapter 5 opens with Buck preparing to track down the shady pilot who he hopes can get him to NYC. He recalls that before he got on this ill-fated journey to England, he'd stopped in Chicago to apologize to Lucinda Washington, the bureau chief of the Global Weekly in the city. Buck had recently stolen a story about a former Bears player trying to buy a football team, and she was upset enough about it to demand Buck visit her to say sorry. They joked around and made up without too much fuss, but Lucinda offered to have Buck visit her church. They'd previously discussed Buck's spiritual turn, but he claimed he was a deist and couldn't get on board with Jesus just yet. This conversation took place three days ago, and much has changed since then. It should also be noted that Lucinda is the first person of color to be given a speaking role in the franchise, and is described as a 50-something black woman. An Asian neighbor of Ray's is mentioned in Chapter 4, but she has long since vanished. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on portrayals of people of color in this series, because something tells me they're going to have a slightly shorter shelf life than our pals Ray and Buck. The reason Buck was traveling to London, it's revealed, is that he planned to visit his old college buddy, an Englishman by the name of Dirk Burton. I cannot believe how good all the names are in this franchise. <laughs> Dirk has been feeding Buck tips about financial dealings and conspiracies for years, and had recently left him a message that required an in-person discussion. Buck recalls one of their old talks about big global players in the finance world, during which Dirk informed him that there will soon be a move to one global currency. Buck didn't believe it at the time, but this prediction turned out to be completely accurate. Another wonderful 90s moment comes when Dirk says that the reason those important finance people want to switch to one currency is because it, quote, takes computers forever to constantly readjust every day, which seems so quaint now that most Americans carry a computer in their pocket. Dirk also mentioned the name Jonathan Stonigal as one of these important rich people trying to start a global currency shift. Buck informs the reader that Stonigal is one of the richest men in the world, an 80-year-old American power broker. This guy, along with a man named Joshua Todd Cothran, who runs the London Exchange, are largely responsible for the three-currency shift. Dirk was totally spot-on with his previous tip, which is why Buck is so gung-ho about trying to find him now. Buck makes a list of five people he needs to call. The charter pilot, his dad, Hattie, Lucinda, and Dirk. Meanwhile, Rayford is awoken by the sound of his phone. It's Hattie, calling to check up on him. She asks if he's okay, and he tells her that his wife and son are gone but his daughter Chloe is still out there. Hattie is upset that he didn't call like he said he would, but he admits that he was so consumed by grief that he didn't try. He continues to lament ever pining for her, realizing that his attraction to a woman much younger than him was all a stupid dream. Hattie receives another call, but promises to call Ray back, to which he responds, Well, okay. We switch back to Buck, who leaves a message for Ken Ritz, the sketchy pilot. Ritz's voicemail informs Buck that he's charging $2 a mile in cash and that he can't get into any major airstrips. If you consider that $2 back then is about 
3.36 today, it's not going to be a cheap trip. Buck asks that the pilot continue to play phone tag with him while he tries to find a convenient place to get picked up. He gets a message from Marge Potter, his boss's secretary, who informs Buck that his father and brother Jeff are okay, but they still can't get a hold of Jeff's wife and kids. We learn that Jeff and his wife had separated before they had kids, but somehow got back together. Buck seems to care very much about his niece and nephew. He then gets a hold of Hattie Durham and conveys the happy news that her mom and sisters are all still there. Hattie asks how his family is doing, but when he talks about how they can't find his niece and nephew still, Hattie becomes upset again, since she knows basically all children have disappeared. She apologizes for bringing it up, and Buck consoles her, saying that no one is really in their right mind right now. She thanks him, asking if he might call her again sometime. Buck recognizes that normally this would be considered flirting, but she's being totally genuine and just seems like she just needs another person to connect with in these trying times. As he gets off the line, the airport staffer waves him over. As it turns out, there's a ton of limos near the Manaheim Road Exchange that are taking people away from the airport. Buck hikes out there and pays $100 in traveler's checks to get a ride to the northern suburbs. He gives the driver another $50 to borrow his phone and makes his fourth call to Lucinda Washington, but only her teenage son answers. The boy informs Buck that his mom and dad are both gone. He found his dad's contact lenses still on top of his bathrobe. After making sure the boy has relatives who can take care of him, Buck asks to get dropped off at a crappy hotel with a phone. Chapter 6 opens with Ray hunting down a fifth of whiskey in preparation to get wasted. He remembers the arguments he had with Irene about keeping hard alcohol in the house. Since her conversion, Irene went completely sober, to the point that she didn't want little Raimi to know his dad was still a drinker. Ray's instinct is to drink straight from the bottle, but in a wonderful moment of humanity, he takes down a crystal glass and pounds the shots from there. Even when his world is collapsing, Ray refuses to give up his manners, which I have to respect. He finishes the bottle, which was half empty to begin with, and decides there's no point in drinking more, one, because it's a nice way to honor his wife, and two, because getting slammed alone is a major bummer. While stewing in his sorrow, Ray begins to understand why some people who never find the body of their deceased loved ones are so upset, because he too knows he won't have closure over his wife and son. Ray tries to reach Chloe's dorm at Stanford over and over again, but has no luck. Eventually, he shakes himself out of his stupor and realizes he hasn't eaten since this whole catastrophe started. Before he eats, he packs his son and wife's clothes into a cardboard box, along with her wedding ring. For dinner, Ray tracks down the batch of cookies he knew his wife had made since she'd sent him two in that envelope. He pours himself a glass of milk and enjoys four cookies over a paper plate. Now is a good time to take a moment and reflect on how profoundly sad this scenario is. Ray's just paralyzed. He can't force himself to go upstairs, so he lays by the couch, constantly calling Chloe's dorm, too tired to cry anymore. But do not despair, listeners. Now that he's hit rock bottom, we begin to witness the rebuilding of the Man of Steel. Ray has an epiphany, a sudden realization that if Chloe is still alive, he can't let her down again. He resolves to find out what Irene had pushed him toward all these years, the truth he refused to see. He realizes that if the rapture has taken place, surely it's not the end of the story. What about Judgment Day and Hell and all that? Does God have a limit to his mercy? Ray doesn't want to sit on his hands and find out. There's just so much inner monologue going on. Did you all know that they made this into a movie? Twice? Once in 2000 with Kirk Cameron, and then again in 2014 with Nicolas Cage? They must have cut out a ton of Ray moping. Anyway, Ray reflects on his relationship with his kids. 
he comes to the conclusion that Chloe, being more like him, was likely not saved because of his tendency to put himself first, a personality trait she inherited. On the other hand, he'd always been worried that his son was something of a mama's boy who cared too much about other people, which like, hey, if your main worry is that your son's too nice to others, you're the villain, my man. Regardless, Ray takes it upon himself to protect Chloe, since he blames himself for her non-raptured status. Back in his dumpy motel, Buck replays the message from Dirk Burton that had prompted him to take a trip to London in the first place. Dirk comes across as very paranoid, going so far as to not use his name or the names of important figures in the message. He implies that the rich dudes we previously mentioned, Jonathan Stonigal and Joshua Todd Cothran, have recently met with a third party from Europe and are planning some world-changing maneuvers. Apparently Stonigal and the European have been meeting important figures across the globe, conducting secret meetings, and are surely up to something nefarious. Specifically, Dirk warns Buck about the installation of a new leader in Europe. Buck finally gets in touch with his dad, and learns the sad truth about his sister-in-law and her kids. They're all gone. His brother Jeff is still looking for his wife, despite the fact that they found her clothes in her flipped-over car. Buck expresses his sympathies, and his father says he wishes he was back home with them, to which Buck sarcastically responds, Yeah, I'll bet. It's at this point we learn that Buck has some daddy issues. His dad ran a trucking business that his brother went into, but Buck's Ivy League education let him escape to what Buck considers a better life. When Buck's mom got sick and died, he was away at school, and his dad and brother hated him for it. As the years passed and Buck got mega famous, they maintained a civil relationship, but Buck never really goes home. Hold up. Have you all noticed a pattern of women being super influential in these characters' lives, yet not actually having agency or being dead slash raptured before they can do anything? So far in the text, we've only met one major female character who isn't dead or vanished, and that's Hattie, who is a stand-in for race, temptation, and lack of faith. Along with people of color, let's keep track of how women are portrayed in this series as well. I know Chloe Steele comes back to be important later, but I don't remember how. Buck talks about the vanishings with his dad, who insists that if it was the return of Christ, people like him and Buck and Jeff would have been taken too, since they all went to church and are all ostensibly Christians. But Buck remembers his family church trips being shallow and lacking impact on how they lived their lives outside of Sunday morning, and explains that he quit going as soon as he could choose for himself. He doesn't belabor the point, though, and tells his dad he'll try to see them once things at work clear up. The clerk at the motel then informs Buck that while he was chatting with his father, the pilot he'd been trying to reach called and said that he'd pick him up at 6am. After the clerk weasels a tip out of Buck, he falls straight asleep, eager to face the next day. We shift back to Ray, still in a haze after sleeping on the couch. He glances at the newspaper, an odd curiosity since it was printed before the disappearances. He calls Chloe's dorm again, and this time, someone answers. A young woman, presumably a fellow student, informs Ray that his daughter left Stanford and is trying to fight her way back to Chicago. Ray thanks her for the tip and asks if she lost anyone. She reports that she actually hasn't lost anyone close to her. Ray feels a pang of sorrow, as he understands now that this girl didn't know anyone who went to heaven. Then again, she is from California, and I wouldn't be surprised if the authors expect that whole state to fall into hell at any moment. Calmed by the news that Chloe is at least trying to get home, Ray casually flips through the newspaper. Apparently, a 33-year-old Romanian became president without an election because of his unanimous popularity with both the people and political class. Rayford thinks that he looks like a young Robert Redford. Huh. Weird. Anyway, there's no chance this Romanian dude is significant to the plot. Weird how he keeps popping up. Chapter 7 has Buck getting picked up by this charter pilot, 
who I didn't stress enough before, is named Ken Ritz. Ken explains that he's going to get Buck as close to JFK Airport as possible, but he'll probably have to do some walking. He charges $1,500, or nearly $2,500 in today's currency. Buck's good for it, though, and they take off from McKeegan. As they're climbing into the air, Ken reveals that he used to work as a commercial pilot before he was fired. Buck is understandably upset that he's placed his life in the hands of a screw-up, but his fears are assuaged when Ken informs him that the reason he was grounded was that he refused to fly a certain model of puddle jumper because of a safety issue, which later proved fatal for other pilots. So as far as we know, Ken may be something of an opportunistic vulture, but he's at least got a good head on his shoulders. Ken turns the conversation to the disappearances. Buck pulls out a tape recorder to hear his thoughts, and of course, Ken immediately starts talking about UFOs. He clarifies, though, saying he's not afraid of aliens, he's just seen some weird things, like aircraft that have seemingly disappeared and instrument malfunctions that always happen in the same area. Ken believes that if there were extraterrestrial beings trying to get in contact with them, they definitely wouldn't look like what you see in the movies, and that since space is so infinitely vast, it's totally plausible that some greater intelligence has developed technology beyond our comprehension. His theory is that the disappearances happened because something was able to gauge the ability of individual humans to resist its technology, and then sucked up those who were too weak to fight it, which explains why every child has been taken. Ken's worst fear is that it might happen again, that this force is going to crank up the potency of its future weapon and take the people who resisted the first time. Buck points out that some people who were taken were the strongest he knew, and spares a moment to grieve for Lucinda. Meanwhile, Ray is still on his couch, desperately trying to sleep, longing to see his daughter. In contrast to the previous chapters, Ray now has a fire under his butt, and he needs to find out what happens next. Since he suspects the vanishings are spiritual in origin, he tracks down Irene's Bible, which is sure to have important notes that'll point him in the right direction. He finds it on the floor next to their bed, and racks his brain for every scrap of biblical knowledge he possesses. All he can come up with is Genesis 1-1, so he makes the logical leap that if Genesis is the beginning, maybe something at the end of the Bible will give him a clue. That takes him to Revelation. In particular, he seizes upon one verse at the end which states, Yes, I am coming quickly, which sounds about as rapture as anything else. He also finds a line that reads, Let the one who is thirsty come. With the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. It occurs to Ray that his soul is thirsty, and that maybe this book is the key to slaking that thirst. However, he fears he's reading it too late, and that he may have missed his shot at redemption. While flipping through this Bible, he opens the cover and looks at an inscription on the flyleaf. As it turns out, he'd actually given this Bible to his wife as a first anniversary present. She had been trying to become more involved in her spiritual life, and Ray thought this would be a good way to prove he supported her without actually doing anything. When they switched to a church that became more invasive about their personal connection to God, Ray bounced. Now, looking at this old Bible, he finds a list of people Irene prayed for, with his name at the top. The three-word prayer beside it reads, For his salvation. Ray doesn't know much about salvation, but now, more than ever, he wants to. Ken Ritz lands in Easton, Pennsylvania, and arranges for Buck to get transport to a train that might take him close to New York. In a weird bit of shade, it's mentioned that the driver is not a cabbie, and is not driving a cab. Quote, but it might as well have been. It was just as decrepit and unsafe, end quote. Hey, LaHaye and Jenkins, what's your beef with taxis? Buck gets on this train, and after two hours of travel, 
It takes him to within 15 miles of his office before having to turn around because most of New York is still a disaster zone. Buck begins hiking through the iron jungle of NYC, and three hours later is exhausted and still about three miles from the Global Weekly. In a moment of frustration, he mutters, Oh God help me, while trying to find a place to rest. Immediately, he notices a bicycle nearby with a sign that says, Borrow this bike, take it where you like, leave it for someone else in need. With the help of this possibly divinely provided present, Buck rides the last few miles into Manhattan, where he finally makes his triumphant return to the magazine. When he arrives, both his editor Steve Plank and the secretary Marge Potter rush over to hug him. All around are colleagues, both friends and enemies, but many co-workers are notably absent. They applaud when they see their star journalist, and Buck breaks down, relieved that he's home and overcome by the horrible experience he's just lived. Back in Chicago, Rayford calls the Pan-Continental Flight Center and learns that he's scheduled to fly on Friday, but it's unlikely he'll actually have to do it due to the global fiasco that's still ongoing. Ray asks the staffer if he can help track down his daughter. Surprisingly, he can. Chloe was rerouted all across the western U.S., but is soon flying into Springfield, Illinois. The staffer also informs Ray that in an ironic twist, Chloe was lucky to have missed the direct flight out of Palo Alto, as the last one crashed with no survivors. Destiny, it seems, is not done with the Steele family just yet. Honestly, I didn't get a lot out of these chapters. It's a lot of phone calls, inner monologue, and various forms of transportation. We're still in the aftermath of the rapture, which, as it turns out, is sad and tedious. We learn about Dirk Burton and his wild conspiracies, which I'm always down for, but I don't think they're going to be important for a while. At least we hit the part of Ray's arc where he starts seeking out answers behind the disappearances, which I assume eventually leads to him becoming a stand-up guy. In this week's Apocrypha, we're going to do a brief overview of the book of the Bible that the whole Left Behind franchise is based on, the Book of Revelation. Fun fact, a lot of people sometimes mistakenly refer to it as the Book of Revelations. Those people are filthy heretics and are to be shunned. It should be noted that the sources used for this section are the Wikipedia article on Revelation and an article from the BBC titled, quote, Revelation. One of my good friends, Emmy, has recommended real books on the topic, which I promise to pick up if I get past episode 10. The Bible passages quoted are from the New International Version. Revelation itself is likely to have been written in the late 1st century AD. It is widely understood in Christian tradition to have been written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus's 12 original disciples, and the one whom you could argue he loved the most. However, when compared to Revelation, John's Gospel has a much different writing style and time frame, so secular scholars believe they're two different authors. Regardless, the author of Revelation was likely an active church member operating in Asia Minor, which was controlled by the Roman Empire at the time. As such, the shadow of Rome looms large over Revelation, and many interpret verses in the book to be references to Nero or Domitian, two of the most brutally anti-Christian emperors in Rome's history. The book itself was intended to be distributed to seven church communities in Asia Minor, including those in Ephesus, Pergamum, and Sardis. John considers himself a prophet, as he receives a vision of Christ in the first chapter, which he testifies about throughout the entirety of Revelation. Throughout the book, many scenes portrayed mirror those seen by prophets from the Old Testament, like Ezekiel in episode 1. Wikipedia helpfully gives us an outline of the major points, starting with Christ's appearance to John in the beginning. From there, John writes individual messages to each of the seven Asian churches, 
praising and admonishing them for their faith and sins respectively. Next, the throne of God, attended by twenty-four elders, appears. A scroll closed with seven seals is presented to, quote, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. This lion is also a lamb with, quote, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, end quote. The number seven is going to come up a lot. The lamb breaks these seven seals, which unleash all manner of plague and destruction upon the earth. Seven trumpets are played, and they also ravage the planet with similar calamities. John then describes seven spiritual figures, most notably a pregnant woman, quote, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and crown of twelve stars on her head, end quote, as well as a red dragon and several different capital B beasts. Finally, seven bowls are poured out onto the earth, which are also a pretty bad time. Once the bowls are outpoured, the city of New Babylon is destroyed, which I believe coincides with Christ's second coming. The aforementioned beasts are destroyed, those who were martyred for God are resurrected, and the millennium of Christ's reign on earth begins. After the thousand years are over, the dragon is released one more time to gather an army against God, which is inevitably defeated. The final judgment takes place, and a new heaven and new Jerusalem are created, and humanity lives with God for eternity. While many of John's visions are terrifying, apocalyptic, and full of symbolism, they have nonetheless seeped into the popular consciousness. For instance, the number 666, the popularization of the word Armageddon, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse all have roots in Revelation. As we continue our journey through Left Behind, we'll go into specific chapters and references, so I don't want to get too deep into it here. But suffice it to say that outside of the Gospels, Revelation might, in a roundabout way, be one of the most influential books in the Bible. But just because it's influential doesn't mean it's been fully embraced by the Church. While biblical canon was being decided, Revelation was often ignored or outright rejected by various Christian synods. Pope Benedict said in 2006 that Catholics should interpret Revelation as an understanding of Christ's victory over evil rather than a warning. Martin Luther described Revelation as, quote, neither apostolic nor prophetic, and John Calvin did not care much for it either. The Wikipedia article actually has one line from the Protestantism section, which just reads, quote, the early Protestants followed a historicist interpretation of the Bible, which identified the Pope as the Antichrist. Classic Protestants. Lastly, the Eastern Orthodox Church does not read from Revelation during the liturgy and other ceremonies. Every single plague, curse, battle, and beast described in Revelation appears in the Left Behind novels. All of those bowls and trumpets and judgments, LaHaye and Jenkins portray their aftermath in excruciating detail. This comprehensive imagination of Revelation in all its apocalyptic glory is, in my opinion, what makes this franchise so exciting. Though you couldn't tell it from these three chapters, the authors are slowly building up a vision of the world so they can absolutely devastate it in the books to come. That'll bring us to the end of our show. If you want more, go ahead and give this podcast a five-star rating and review. We're on Apple Podcasts now, so please, please, please do it. If you found the show humorous or interesting, please mention it to a friend, as word of mouth is the best way to get out any sort of message. Follow me on Twitter at AaronSXL for news about new episodes. This has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of the Earth's last days. <laughs>